This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by Acid Test, AB's unique and powerful tool for aligning organisations around a common cause. Now, we all know communication does not equal understanding. If it did, well, our jobs would be a lot easier. The acid test of internal communication is whether there is shared understanding. Is the goal clear? Are we all pulling in the same direction? Do we share the same priorities, the same purpose? Acid test is a powerful tool that reveals knowledge gaps inside organisations. Its unique and proven methodology gives you the insight and information you need to drive performance by creating deeper understanding and alignment. Now, listeners, you know how fond I am of asking open, probing questions that hopefully reveal fresh and genuine insight. Acid Test is not a tick box survey. Instead, the method is a message. Simply taking part in acid tests makes employees feel heard, understood, and valued. Visit abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash acid test to find out more. Download a PDF to discuss with your team and arrange an informal call to discuss acid test with me and my AB colleagues. So that address again for you, abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash acid test. Now is the time to take a privileged peek inside the mind of your organisation by asking the questions that matter. Acid test, a communications audit without the autocomplete. Hello and welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. My goal with this show is to help improve the way organisations communicate with their people. I interview practitioners, academics and strategists to uncover fresh thinking that hopefully informs, inspires and advances the internal comms profession. In recent years, the behavioural sciences have heavily influenced the work of our friends in marketing. A better understanding of what drives human behaviour and decision-making has influenced how marketing teams think about the customer experience, product design, and indeed all aspects of marketing comms. For this episode, I wanted to explore how behavioural science can influence our thinking and our work as internal comms pros. So I reached out to William Leach, one of the world's leading behavioural science experts. Will has more than 25 years experience applying behavioural design to marketing, including running PepsiCo's Behavioural Research Lab. He is the author of the best-selling book, Marketing to Mindstates, a practical guide to applying behavioural design to research and marketing. And he is a two-time winner of the Explore Award for behavioural science research. 
Will is the founder and CEO of two businesses, Triggerpoint and the Mindstate Group, which use behavioural science to create more effective marketing for their clients, marketing that really does drive people to act. Now, I couldn't have wished for a better guide to the behavioural sciences. Will brings this subject to life with great passion, energy and enthusiasm. Plus, as you'll hear, plenty of personal insight and experience. This episode gave me plenty to think about, especially how we can tap into the underlying goals and motivations of our employees and connect with them in a more fundamental and meaningful way. So, without further ado, I bring you Will Leach. So, Will, welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast. I am super excited to have you here. Thank you for having me, Katie. It's my pleasure. (laughs) So, I wonder if we could start pretty near the beginning, because I noticed, if I'm reading LinkedIn correctly, you were a combat engineer with the US Army. Indeed, you were awarded the Army Commendation Medal. How do you get from the military to marketing? It is an insane story. So contrary to what you may believe, I was terrible in school. Like I I barely graduated high school, barely graduated high school. I was the typical American guy who thought, that I will one day play baseball, yet I never made my high school baseball team. I had no reason to believe that. I, I graduated at 135 pounds, and um, I didn't have uh, anywhere to go. I wasn't ready for college. I had no aspirations for college. And so I joined the military, just like all of the men in my family, without ever thinking I'd leave the military. And I was lucky enough to uh, become a combat engineer, but I was actually stationed with a unit that did not focus on war, they focus on natural disaster relief. So if there's a natural disaster in the US, there are certain units that are designated by the military to be able to go into any state within 12 hours to establish water, roads, supplies, because it may take 24 hours for the Red Cross or National Guard or other government services. And I got to work with a lot of officers, a lot of college-educated people who saw something in me. And I was one of those lucky guys who had a mentor a captain in the, in the military who saw something in me. And one day he said, um, hey, I signed you up for college. And I said, you can't do that. Like, you can't just sign me up for college. And he said, well, you can either go to college on Tuesday nights or you can do KP duty, which is kitchen patrol, like washing dishes. <laughs> and so I went to college and I loved it. And really what happened was, as the story goes, I left to go back. I left to go to college just so I could become an officer, get a degree and go back to the military. But I went to a school um, in Florida, South Florida, and it's sunny and it's there's beautiful girls all over the place. And I fell in love multiple <laughs> times a day. And after about three weeks, I thought, I'm not going back in the military. So I, um, and, and the way I found my way into marketing, so I left the military and I didn't think I'd ever go to college. I, that wasn't in my DNA, but I did like data. For some reason, I had an economics professor that just, it made sense. I was terrible in finance, terrible in accounting. Mathematics, I'm I'm a nightmare. But data analytics and economics made sense to me for some reason. And I did my first degree from University of Florida in resource economics. And my second degree was a master's degree from Texas A&M University, which is more in the middle of of the country. And 
that was a that was a degree focused on forecasting futures. So the idea would be I was going to go and I would forecast you know uh, yields of crops, and the idea would be I'd go to Chicago Board of Trade and make millions of dollars if I could just forecast. So I went to Texas A&M University to learn this from a very elite professor, and in three weeks, I hated it. I couldn't oh. stand it. I, I couldn't believe I just moved to Texas. I knew nobody in Texas. I got a degree, uh, or I was working on a degree, I thought, in, in, in econometrics, and I couldn't stand looking at fertilizer rates and you know, <laughs> growth of soybeans. And I, I came from South Florida. I didn't come from agriculture at all. So I, so I went and talked to him, and I said, I, I just can't stand it. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can't work for you. And he said, well, the bad news is I'm not going to pay for you to go to college here if you're not going to work on this degree. But he said, I think there's something over in the School of Business. And I think it's called marketing research. And he, go, and he said, I think they do something with regressions and data over there. You should go look, talk to them. So I went over to a, to, to a back of a classroom and it was in marketing research. And I'd never taken a marketing class. Never, I was in economics. And I fell in love. I just, I was sitting in the back of the class and they're talking about trying to forecast, I'll do my air quotes, human behavior and trying to understand why people do what they do. And I'd never heard of these sciences before. I never took a psychology class, never took a sociology class. And I could not believe that people were trying to understand the most, I used to call it the most complex system ever devised, right? The human mind. And I was floored. And all of a sudden, I, I, I just fell in love with that. And now I am 20 years later in the same field, doing my passion even to this day. So I literally got there through a series of unfortunate or maybe fortunate events and mistakes, but ultimately I'm where I, where I love being. So your book opens with quite a bold statement. You write, it was the morning of June the 9th, 2009 in Frisco, Texas, when I made the most shocking realization of my professional life Almost everything I'd learned over an entire consumer marketing career up to that point was simply wrong. So what was that shocking realization? Yep. So I was in my marketing career for about 15 years. I was a director at PepsiCo at the time. And that moment was the birth of my son, Nicholas. And he he is, of course, like any dad, he changes your life. Children change your life. But for me... So Nicholas was born born early, way early. Well, in my world, five weeks early. And so I wasn't prepared. So if you know me and I'm a military guy, I live by rules and science and I have a checklist of 30 things that I check off every day. And, and, and I just, I do cost benefit analyses and pros and cons lists and that's who I am. And so we were prepping for Nicholas. And in my mind, I still had five weeks. And so we we're figuring out a, um, a daycare for him. But even though he wasn't going to go to daycare for another year, that was on my list. And I had to check off this list. So we had narrowed down our choices down to about three. And we're still going through the interviewing process. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to find this thing. You know, there's so much pressure. And Nicholas was born early. So I remember it was, everything was fine. He was perfect. So all the drama left. And my wife, Melanie, like she, we literally... By the time she started contractions to the birth was three hours. Every woman hated wow. her in the hospital. She she pushed four times, came and it was done. And I don't so, want to hear this. I know, right? Everyone's, everyone else everyone ward was angry at her because I couldn't believe this girl came in and just it was easy. So it was seven thirty in the morning, and she said, "Why don't you go?" Like she could tell I was out of it. I, I was not ready. I still had five weeks to prepare, and. I was walking out and she said, go get the bag. Cause we didn't, we didn't know what was going on. So I didn't have a baby bag. She was go home, sleep, come back with the baby bag. She was awesome. 
but I felt inadequate in every way because I was not ready to be a dad. I was supposed to have a meeting at PepsiCo that afternoon, you know, presenting this big presentation. And all of a sudden I was a dad and I didn't know what to do. And I remember I was walking out of the building and I looked up and I saw a daycare called Carpe Diem that was literally directly across the street from the hospital. And all I know is, and I'm getting chills as I say this even today, I got in my car and I drove across the street and I walked in the front door and I said, I want to go ahead and sign up my son. Now, I didn't even talk to my wife, which is crazy, right? We, wow. I made this decision. I just, I literally gave them my credit card. I said, I, he needs a spot. And I got him a spot. The last spot is what they told me. It's the very last spot, Mr. Leach. I said, okay, I just need it. And, I, and who was, even though that spot was a year away, I, I gave him my credit card. I said, you give me that spot. You take my down payment. I went home and I felt great about myself. It was an hour or so later, actually probably when I woke up from my, from my nap, and I thought to myself, I cannot believe I just went across the street to sign up my son for daycare without ever talking to my wife, without make, having any sense of... I didn't study them. I didn't know that company very well or that daycare very well, but they were available. And in the world I grew up in, which was cost-benefit analyses of economics, right? I look for utility. I have to, do, I have to look at data analytics. And all I know is that I went across the street, I swiped a credit card, and I felt good. And in marketing, they, that Carpe Diem was the name, of the name of the daycare. They didn't tell me their benefits. I didn't know the price. This is how weird it was. Now, maybe I was tired, but I didn't know the price I was paying. I literally just went in there because I wanted to be a dad. And a good dad has their son in daycare. He, he doesn't wait. And I felt like a good dad. And in my world of looking at you know, benefits and things like that, was supposed to drive people to make choices and drive good marketing. That, that didn't work. And all of a sudden, I started looking totally differently at World of Marketing Research, where we ask people, what are you wanting out of a product? What, how much do you want to pay? That, that stuff did not enter my mind when I made a massive, uh, massive decision for my family. And it's that point where I started questioning marketing research as well as marketing. And then you know, a decade later, I wrote a book about all the behavioral sciences that now tell us that we don't often make choices based upon rational choice benefits and, and wants and needs and desires. We make decisions based upon emotion. And I think it's important at this point to sort of define what you mean by mind state, because it is, it's not a personality type. It's not a persona, is it? It's a state of mind you find yourself in, perhaps not even really properly understanding that you're in that state of mind. It's why we make choices that surprise even us sometimes. And we think we know ourselves pretty well, but we often actually don't. Would that be a fair way of describing it? It's a very fair way of of describing it. So let me just give you a, a data point for anybody who's listening. You make, on the average, 35,000 decisions on any given day. 35,000 decisions. If you had to think through the cost-benefit analyses of every single decision you're supposed to make on any given day, you wouldn't get out of bed. There's no way you could get out of bed because you would have to think to yourself, okay, you hear the alarm. Do I open my eyes? Do I not open my eyes? Do I turn off my alarm? Do I not turn off my alarm? Do I get out of bed? Do I stay in bed? Do I get out with my left foot first, right foot first? So there's all these decisions you're making. And the fact of the matter is that you don't do cost-benefit analysis on very, very, very few decisions. I mean, can you? I can't even come up with 100 decisions that I made yesterday, though technically I probably made thousands of small decisions. So the vast majority of your life and your behaviors are based upon your subconscious. So you better understand how that influences your beliefs, your decisions. It comes down to these psychological mind states, these temporary moments, like the moment when I went across the street, when I, when I entered out of the hospital and I was 
high emotional arousal. I wasn't thinking, but I saw something. And I made a decision like that, that said, go across the street and go get your boy into a daycare. That made no rational sense. I didn't do cost-benefit analyses at all. I just went across the street. You are in these mind states many times every day. Not in the thousands, but in these mind states many times in the day where kind of just things just kind of stop, if you will. You're not thinking, you're just reacting. And it, it, when you're watching TV, you're in mind states. Why it's so important for you to understand a mind state is that it, you're exactly right, Kitty. It's not a personality. It is not a segmentation. It is what happens in these moments throughout the day that influence you. Because I am more complex than a segmentation. I am a father. I'm a son. I'm an entrepreneur. I go to church. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I, I like tennis. I have all these different roles and responsibilities and aspects to my life. And if you study somebody as a segment, you're missing a large part of who they are as a person. Behavioral sciences and mind states allow you to understand these moments in time where I may be in a different role. Like right now, I'm in a business role and kind of a friendship role with you, right? That's the role. Take me out of here and I'm going to talk to my son about eating healthy. I'm in a different role. I'm in a father role. That's why mind states matter is to understand that role you're under in these moments and speak to those roles. Because when you speak to these mind states, you are much more likely to increase the emotional arousal that people have, your excitement that they have, their interest in you. And when people are interested and they're excited and they're in these moments of temporary emotional arousal, they're more susceptible to influence. That's why communications work. Um, when you are not speaking that way, they're less likely to work, whether it's marketing, whether it's parenting, whether it's whatever it is that you're trying to do these moments matter. It's so interesting because it gives such a richer context to the way we might look at employees. So normally when we look at an employee, we say, oh, he's in a HR role or a managerial role, or he's on the front line serving customers. But actually you're so right. In any one of those given days, that person could be in seven different roles a different person in a tea break than they would be with a very loyal customer they see every day, for example. And that's just one example. But mm -hmm. it's such a richer way of looking at people. I love it. And, it, and it's, it's, it's it, to your point, it's, it's more comprehensive. It's more real. Like, don't look at your employees as, well, they are a manager in HR or they are in IT. That is one small element who they are. And the more you understand them as a whole and these moments of time, the more engaged you're going to be, the more loyal they're going to be, the more they're supportive they're going to be of you because you understand them at a much deeper level. It's no different than what we try to do in marketing where we try to build products and services to match these our customers. It's the same idea, but just it, it, it works in almost any human relationship. I love that you write, we don't think nearly as much as we think we do. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that right. made me smile. And it seemed to me that a cornerstone of this approach is system one, and system two decision-making. And we've kind of touched on it already here about all those almost subconscious decisions that we make. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll get in the car, I'll drive to A to B, and I'll think, I didn't think about that journey once. I've just been trying to work out a work problem. I love that. I love that. Yeah, that's <laughs> How exactly often does right. does that happen? All but is time. that system one or system two? It kind of is. So, so back in the 1970s, there's a very famous psychologist named Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And there's all sorts of information about these guys, but they started looking at economics differently. So remember, I came from an economics background, which was we try to find utility. We try to figure out the, like, we kind of do these rationalized uh, choices and we find the best utility and whatever we have maximization of utility, we make a decision. 
These guys looked at the world and said, I don't think that's true. I think we make emotional decisions. Back in the 70s, Katie, that was unheard of. People didn't talk that way, especially econometricians. So over years, you know, they won the Nobel Prize in, eco- in economics, yet they're psychologists, which is a big wow. deal if you're an economics guy like me, because somebody who came outside of your, your, your kind of discipline won the Nobel Prize. And what they did is they said, they've looked at the world and now it's well, well-established principles now that says we have two decision-making systems. We all have these decision-making systems and we use these systems every day, system one and system two. System one are those decisions out of those 35,000 that are made emotionally, subconsciously, um, effortlessly. And then you have system two, which are those decisions that you're rationally thinking about. Like um, when you're going to choose something for lunch and you're looking at a menu, you're more, you're more rational, you're looking for evidence, etc. So now many people out there are like, well, what's so new about this? Because it's either emotional or rational, subconscious, conscious, right brain, left brain. That's not what Kahneman, the big deal about what his work was saying. What Kahneman found out is how much bigger system one, your non-conscious is to all system two and why system one, that non-conscious is so much more powerful. And so we all use the iceberg analogy, right? In that, you know, you think about your world at the top of the iceberg, but you don't realize below the waterline, there's this massive, massive berg, if you will, that is, that is there that's influencing things. And what system one and system two does is helps you understand that that subconscious, that stuff under the surface of awareness, how choices are being architected, whether you, what's your emotional state, who you're around, where you are, influences you more than you would ever realize. And so now 20, 30 years later, there's an entire segment of marketing research, an entire industry around marketing that is telling us that when you talk to that subconscious and you message that subconscious, you speak to people's subconscious, you are much more likely to enact a behavior change and get them to make decisions uh, because it's so much more powerful than the rational self. And there's a great example in your book of how the opposite is true as well, which is the sun chips case study in a way, because all the rational benefits of that seem to be working. But then something, tell us about that story because it's brilliant. And also I love it because there are films of it on the internet, which we can link to in the show notes. But it just shows how you've you've got to get this sort of more intuitive subconscious stuff right because it can, as you say, have such a massive impact on the more logical side. So yeah, that story is great if you don't mind sharing it. No worries. So years ago, I was working on a brand called Sunchips, which is a healthy brand, is a healthy snack brand um, that that was developed by uh, Frito-Lay, which is a a division of PepsiCo. So Sunchips traditionally was a healthier snack, but there is this transition of the brand back a long, long time ago, years ago, I guess, when I was running the research side of it, to transition to a green or environmentally sustainable brand. So in doing that, you know, we were looking at all aspects of the brand. Like, how are we sourcing materials? Are we doing that in an environmentally responsible way? But as you can imagine, one of the worst things that people know about snack bags are that they're not compostable. They're not environmentally friendly. They're made of petroleum. So millions of dollars went into this initiative to make Sunchips our first sustainable green brand, environmentally friendly brand. And by doing that, you know, the first thing we had to do is we have to change our packaging. We have to figure out a way to do packaging that doesn't take 3,000 years for packaging to, to, to kind of degrade in naturally in the environment. So 
we had R&D, worked, invested many, many hours and millions of dollars to come up with compostable packaging, which at the time, very few companies were doing. And, and they really seriously put in millions of dollars. And we asked our customers, we did lots of surveys, and we asked, how can we be green? And how can we, how can we be a more sustainable brand? They kept saying the packaging, you have to make the packaging sustainable, sustainable, sustainable. So about uh, a couple of weeks before we're about to launch, uh, I got a call. And it was the brand manager, the person who runs marketing. And she says, we have a really serious problem. I need you to come here. She goes, our bag is making a very weird sound. Now, this is the new bag that's going to come out weeks from now. Um, but it's taken us three years to develop this bag. And she said, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to ruin our sales. And I remember hanging up the phone saying, oh, gosh, she's just so overexcitable. Like, it's a bag. It's environmentally, it's, we, we, we created an environmentally friendly bag that everybody wants. Like, this is, this is silly. So I went over there. I went down the hallway and I touched the bag and it made a pop and it <laughs> pops like glass. And it scared me. I, I wish you guys could see me. I, I, I pulled back because I didn't know what to do. And basically what happened was the only way at that time, the technology to make an environmentally friendly brand, or I'm sorry, bag was a technology that made it when you touched the bag that it sounded like shattering glass. Wow. And when I say that, like you should link to the to the show notes because it really did sound just horrible. So people said they wanted environmentally, uh, environmentally friendly bag. We did lots of concept tests with this idea. And when it came to fruition, we had a bag that made kind of a loud popping noise. Well, so here's what we did. We can't stop R&D. We already announced it on American Idol. We're going to go forward. So what we did was we did a communications plan around. We're going to own the sound of change because we knew there was a sound, uh, an issue with the bag. And uh, we launched into Marketplace and we did exactly what our customers said they want us to do. We created this brand, we communicated everywhere, and within weeks, our sales plummeted. Plummeted. Wow. And, and it's, it's like, yes, I know it wasn't the most exciting, um, it wasn't maybe the perfect way for this bag uh, to be designed, but frankly, we were doing what our customers asked us to do, that rational asked us to do. Well, there's another irrational side of eating chips. And whether you know it or not, I'm going to talk about me. Uh, I eat chips at night um, after my wife goes to bed sometimes, or certainly when she goes to take a, uh, to take a bath. And I do it because I sneak it. Or there's so many people that have, they sneak bags of chips in their drawers at work. And when you are trying to sneak a chip bag and all of a sudden you hear pop, 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 people <laughs> look around. And then you're the person at work who, oh, they're snacking again. And there's actually, <laughs> there's actually, you know, a little bit of shame in that. And so we started finding out through our research was that, you know, yet we created a bag that was environmentally sustainable, the system one non-conscious, when people touch the bag, there's actually shame because there's Will again, he's eating those chips. He can't get off the chips. He's always eating chips. And so we started seeing that people were not eating as many chip, sun chips because there's a social stigma. Every time I touch that bag, not only is it a little bit embarrassing, frankly, but that you are now being seen as a guy who can't control his cravings or a girl yeah. who can't control her cravings. That's subconscious. Nobody would have ever said that if I went to him into a room to say that. I had to use projective techniques on the back end. And lo and behold, we had to pull that bag after just a couple of weeks because our, our sales were just flatlining, not because of anything that we did that was... I mean, we did exactly what we just did. We made a sustainable brand, but we also created shame or at least a little bit of discomfort in, shop, in, in people eating snacks, which as a snack brand, you don't want to do. You want people to eat your snacks. And so that's a great example, I think, of understanding 
when you're building communications or even a packaging, thinking about the system one as well as the system two non-conscious, I'm sorry, the system two rational things and designing around both of those things. And we touched on this just before we started recording because I wanted to check this with you that I was right in thinking, because we're talking about consumers, we're talking about their buying habits and so on, but it's absolutely true, I'm hoping, that we can tap into this system one thinking and it can, we can apply it to the types of communication we work on. So that might be getting our employees to adopt a new process, change some kind of ingrained habit, or simply feel pride in wearing the shirt. If we can tap into that system one thinking, we have... I'm, I take it a much better chance of actually making the difference and actually getting through to them. You do. So so my book is Marketing to Mind States, but it's really a human behavior model. I could have done a book. In fact, yesterday I was, I was doing a presentation to a coaching federation, a global coaching federation. I said that same book could have been called Coaching to Mind States. It could have been called Managing to Mind States. It could be Parenting to Mind States. Because what we talk about, System 1, System 2, Kahneman and Tversky did not come from the world of marketing nor HR. They came from the world of human behavior. So if you're interacting with humans, System 1 and System 2 is a very important thing for you to understand uh, because of the importance of both. So absolutely, it's useful in any human dynamic that you're, um, that you're working, whether you're a parent or, um, or you're working in a huge corporation trying to manage hundreds of people. So... The starting point seems to be research. And I think normally we would conduct some research and maybe we'd create, as I said before, maybe we go as deep as creating audience personas in a segmentation model. But having read your book, I now realise that I need to look for something deeper when I'm researching. Can you talk to goals and particularly those higher order goals that you talk about in the book? as opposed to functional goals. I think if you can give some examples of those goals, then it just helps people understand what they what they have to look for, basically, in their research. Sure. So, you know, imagine a world where you are seeing about 6,000 advertisements every day. Or, you know, people are vying for your attention and your employees' attention all the time. I mean, it's whether it's social media, it's stuff online, it's telephone calls, etc. So... The human mind has created a very sophisticated filter that filters out the vast majority of these distractions. It sounds funny because we're still so distracted, but the vast majority of distractions are filtered. So how do I get my message to go through that psychological filter? So if you have an employee who basically, you know, you're sending emails to, or you're trying to get them to take a different change of behavior, donate more to a, a charitable cause, or be more secure in data security, whatever those things are, realize that the vast majority of your communications, your, your, your messages are being filtered out subconsciously. So you better understand the subconscious filter. That's what these mind states are. And the first part of that filter is understanding somebody's goals, Katie, exactly what you said. And so a goal, um, it, it helps the human mind focus. And there are two types of goals. And, and, I'll, and I'll talk about these functional goals as well as these higher order aspirational goals. And the easy way to think about a functional goal um, is if I asked you or asked your employees, what are you looking for? What are, you, what are you trying to accomplish with your career? They may say things like, well, I want to be a manager. I want to be able to get out at five o'clock. Um, I want to get good pay. I want to be inspired. Just some things that they can rattle off very easily. And that's very important for you to do because in the world of marketing or in the world of product development, those are features. Or for you, that could be, this is the type of culture 
that I want to set or the policies. So when they say those things, you're like, okay, those are good. I need to make sure that my employees get out of five. Okay, I can make sure that they're challenged. These are policies, procedures, whatever. And those are great. The problem is, is that when you talk to those features or those, you know, kind of those functional goals, those aren't inspiring and they don't hold people's attention. What holds people's attention are their higher order or aspirational goals. And these are collectively all those things that you collected when you said, what are you looking for in a job? Collectively, why is that important to them at an emotional level? And so it could be if you asked all those functional goals of an employee and they said, you know, I want to be able to get out of five. I want to be able to also be home to or have flexibility in my work schedule. I want to get a fair pay, all those things. Collectively, there's this concept called laddering. And all that really is, is you say, okay, why, why is that important to you? And they may come back and they say, well, it's really important to me to have those things because um, that helps me become a, um, a stronger individual or, or some, somebody who can reach their goals, whatever that is. Then what you can do is say, but why is that important? Do it twice, ladder it twice. And when you ladder it a second time, you get to a higher order aspiration. And they may say something like, well, um, if I have a job that allows me to be my best self, then I can fulfill that dream of one day I'm making up owning my own company or becoming a CEO of a company, whatever that aspiration is. When you message to that aspiration, when you tell people, I'm here as a manager to help you get to you one day having my job, they will, they, they feel you get them at that deep level that everything you ask them to do, every policy, everything is in relation to helping them reach that aspiration. And the fact of the matter is, is when I speak to somebody's aspirations, whether that's marketing or whether I'm in a review, when you speak to their aspirations, they're going to be intent on listening to you and they can't help it because their subconscious, that system one mind says, you're speaking to me, you're, you're speaking to me and who I am. So it's so important. I can't stress this enough. It's so important to understand the aspirations of your employees, either collectively as a unit but even more importantly, when you're, when you're having a one-on-one conversation that you realize that she is looking to become the next CEO and, and he is looking to just work on his music career, right? It could be as simple as that. But if you know those goals, you can modify conversations. You can speak to them in such a way as that you can link their aspirations to the policies and procedures and your internal kind of systems and you can help them become the very best employee they can be so that they can be, become the very best person that they can be. And that's why it's so important to start off with understanding those functional goals that they have, as well as laddering those up to those higher order aspirational goals. It focuses people's behaviors. There's a really powerful story in your book around home storage. I wonder if you mind just sharing that one, because I think it just really brings this higher order goal to life in quite an emotional way, actually. It does. I was hired by a company to look at home storage. And so we went across the United States and went into people's homes and asked them to show us clutter and tell us where they where they could use better systems or solutions, you know, so whether it's mail or clothes or whatever. And so we got into um, an individual's home and she was by herself and she had two children and um, she was, we're walking around the house and she was telling us about how cluttered things are and how she was asking all these things like, well, you know, I'd love to have a key rack here and I would love to have a small storage bin here or whatever. And she goes into her closet and her closet is a mess. It, it, there's shoes all over the place. There's clothes all over the place. There's no rhyme or reason. And we start laughing. We kind of start laughing. And she said, oh gosh, I, yeah, this boy, I could really use some help here. 
And I asked her, so what are you looking for in your closet? And she started saying, wow, I'd love to have different hangers here. And I'd love to be on a storage unit. And then I said, that is awesome. And I just asked this really basic question that we do. Most, most researchers would know to ask this question, or I hope they would. I say, well, if you got that, like, how does that make you feel? Like, how does it make you feel when um, you, you see this closet here? And then, you know, you, how would you feel about these solutions? And there was this kind of dramatic pause. And she kind of buckled a little bit, like her knees buckled. And she started going down this path of almost despair. And she's like, I'm so embarrassed right now. And she goes, and she started talking about what kind of woman, right? What kind of woman am I that I'm supposed to be the mother and protector of my family, yet I can't even get my closet to be in order? How does that? And she started talking. And she's like, almost there's this point where it went from embarrassment, Katie. She was embarrassed, you know? She forgot that she opened up. She, she had other, like her, you should say her mail had a couple of pieces of mail out. So you could tell she probably looking back, tidied up the house because she has a bunch of, I had a camera crew in there. I had a moderator. The client team was in there. And she went down this path of like, what does it say about me? How could a person who's supposed to, you know, be able to manage her family and, and be a great parent, how could I have this? And she started going this weird place around esteem and shame. And she started feeling like, this is shameful. And she started, she, cry, she started crying in that moment. And I remember like, I'm getting chills right now. And I remember thinking to myself, this is where if I, my, I, I totally remember this, Katie. Two days later, we were meeting with the client team. And I said, guys, if you ever wonder why you come to the, to the office, it is not to produce home storage units. That's silly. Your job is to make sure that she's not buckling her in, in, her, in her closet, feeling shame. And I go, that's what gets you up in day. And if, you could, if we could tap into that emotion, I promise you, you could sell home, unit, home, home uh, storage units, but you can also sell a bunch of other things because this was more encompassing than that closet. This was a feeling of, I'm not good enough for my family. And it just was articulated in that closet where she could experience that feeling because it was visceral. She, she's, her, she stepped on clothes. And so that's why context in many, in many ways are everything. If we could have talked about what size storage unit do you want? Oh yeah, what kind of hangers do you want? That's great. But really, if we can message to, you don't have to be ashamed when your guests entering your home because you know everything's gonna be tidy. That's a very different emotional space. That's why functional goals are great. But those emotional, aspirational, higher order goals I talk in the, about the book are the most important things for you guys to realize. Her goal was to not feel shame had nothing to do with whether she gets different hangers up in storage units. Those are just a mechanism by which she would feel less shame. It's interesting. I think so much of your work, I think at that early stage of exploration where you define those higher order goals is about research, but it's also about a certain type of research. And I really found that quite powerfully in your book that you like to be in the customer's space. You like to be where they are actually making a decision. And I, ref- I was reflecting on this because I've done a lot of qualitative research over the years with employees, but we're often sitting in a meeting room. And I wondered about that. And I thought, hmm, maybe more work actually spent on the front line in their physical space. Would you recommend that? How important is it to actually feel what they're feeling in the moment and be in their environment? Yeah, I, I think it's it's pretty darn critical. I, 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 we're in a world now where it makes it very difficult to do that, but we better get as close as possible to the area where they make decisions, whether that's at their desk or whether that's in their kitchen or whatever. Here's why. When So I, I have my own belief systems, my own attitudes, my preferences, my needs 
just in general as a person, I have these things. However, I, when I go to a church, whether it's for a wedding or for a service, there are social rules, there are norms that not only, in, not only do they influence my behaviors, no doubt about it, they, hey, if I'm in a library, I should speak quieter, right? We're in a library. But they actually, scientifically, they change your beliefs, or they at least modify your beliefs. They modify your wants, your needs, your desires. So there's some research out there that says that where you vote impacts how you vote. Wow. So, as the research goes, if you're going to do, you're going to do, uh, we do these things called um, bonds here where you raise money. And so the idea yes. is that you do a bonds call. And what the research will tell you that if the bond is to uh, be raising money for schools or education, you are much more likely to win that, win that vote if voting takes place in a school. Mm. So if you're in a school because of where you are, education is more important and those elements are more important. If you take that exact same person, that exact same vote, but then have them, have them uh, vote at a fire station or in a police station, they're less likely to vote on that bond. That has nothing to do with their beliefs of whether education is important. It has nothing to do with their attitudes and their wants. And it has everything to do with context matters. So whether we know it or not, who we're with when we make decisions and where we are impact us. And it's all subconscious. You would never know it. So that's why it's really important if you're going to do voting research to have people take that research in that context. Same thing with employees. So um, some of the worst... In fact, when I was at PepsiCo, now this was back in 2012, 2012, we made a decision. We will no longer conduct marketing research inside of a focus group facility. So a, a, a wow. facility where we have people come to and it's a kind of a nice, beautiful office building. We were no longer going to do that because of how scared we were that people, when they're in a sterile environment or where they're in an environment they're not familiar with, that they say what you want them to say versus what they really believe. And so we actually made that choice. We're no longer going to do that. It would have to be very, a very distinct reason why we were going to go away from where they normally make decisions. That's how important it is. It, it changed everything we did in research, in fact. Mm, I love that. I think that's so helpful. As well as goals, you talk about human motivation. So I think possibly the starting point might be, what's the difference between a motivation and a goal? Let's start there. Let's talk about what motivations actually are, and then we'll move on to how that, how we can use that when designing employee communications. Sure. So we all have goals. Every January 1st, I have a list of goals called my New Year's resolutions. And frankly, if two months later, I have reached very few of those, that does not mean that my goals were bad. I have great goals. What happened was I lacked a motivation or a desire to keep going after our goals. So think of it like this way. A goal is a target to focus attention in our behaviors. Think of a motivation as an engine or the fuel that has me as a person want to go after my goal. And when there's resistance, which is distractions and life is just very you know, complex, it's if I lack a motivation, I'll lack progress towards my goal. These things are too distinct. It, it, what I love about what you said, Katie, is a lot of people get these things mixed up. And, and it's easy to get them mixed up because we want both. We want to reach our goals. And we want our desires. But think of it as the fuel or the engine that helps you reach your goal is a motivation. And they're both critical to, to know of your employees because how you speak to somebody's goals will change just slightly, but importantly, based upon what motivates them to reach that aspirational goal of theirs. 
Right, that makes sense. So what's clear to me after reading the book is that when it comes to communicating change, for example, so imagine I've got, you know, an important change to our health and safety procedures or something like that. I really, I wouldn't say I've got to stop listing features and benefits and do's and don'ts, but if I only do that, I am missing the point. So this is incredibly unfair, Will, but I'm going to do it. And I know you can absolutely cope with it. I'm going to put you on the spot and give you a real life example. So you've got a workforce that you are, you need to communicate to about a, for the sake of argument, a data security campaign. So you're wanting to explain to employees why it's important to keep customer data safe. So taking your mind state approach how would you tackle that challenge? Okay, that was on the spot. First thing I would tell you to do is don't think about what you want to do as an employer. As an employer, I got to make sure that my employees are being more secure with data. That's the wrong place to start. That, that is the wrong place to start. What you need to do is say, what are the goals of my employees? And we already talked about that. They want a great career and aspir- let's just make it aspirational say, I think my employees want to become CEOs of companies. Fine. Now, what you're asking them to do, so you have to to figure out that higher order aspirational goal. Now what you have to do is say, how does them becoming more secure with my customer's data, how can I tell them that by them doing that, they are more likely to reach their goals, not your company's goals about protecting data. They don't care about that. They care about their goals. We're all selfish. So what you have to do is now take a look at that same idea and say, how does that, if I communicate that the importance of this, I need to also be able to link the importance of data security with their future ability to become a CEO. And I'm not saying that's easy, but what I am telling you, it's effective. So first, you have to figure out what those goals are for their career, and then position your security initiative around this allows them to get one step closer to their aspirations. Why that, again, is important because I'm now more able to focus. Your whole communications around data security are more likely to get through that filter that we filter out messaging. That's why your employees, your your employees are generally not so resistant to your ideas that they're just disregarding those ideas. That's unfair. They're not receiving, even if I'm having a one-to-one conversation we get distracted. We can't read. Things don't go into long-term memory. So that's why so they're not actively saying, no, I will not be secure with data. What they're saying to you, what they're telling you when they don't take action is that you didn't communicate in the right way. You didn't, you didn't link it to their aspirations because when you link something to somebody's aspirations, they're more likely to remember that, to make it a habit, et cetera. So don't focus on you, focus on them, really focus on their goal. And then let's talk about those motivations, right? Because So I, you now have, have, have told me Yes, I, if I am secure with data, I am more likely to become a CEO of a company. Okay, but there's lots of other ways I could become a CEO of a company, right? So, so how do I get somebody to keep thinking about, think about corporate security? Keep thinking about it, keep thinking about it. That's motivation. That's that fuel. So there are nine motivations we talk about in the book. And the big one in HR right now is autonomy. Now, you may mm. not think of it as autonomy, but we, the real the, the autonomy is the desire for freedom. I want more freedom in my job or whatever. So if you knew your employee was wanting to become the next CEO of a major company, great. And you also knew that they were driven by autonomy, which is the desire for freedom. They see, hey, if you give me lots of freedom, I am more likely to be able to become the next CEO. Now, I need to take a look at that security initiative and say, how do I link in this, if they, if they are more secure with data, 
they will have more autonomy in their job, therefore more likely to reach their aspirational goal. It's, it sounds probably more complex than it is, but that's very different motivation than other people will be driven by achievement, which is a totally different motivation. And those people in achievement, they desire success. So now you do say, you know, the most successful CEOs understand the importance of data security. Bam, I just linked data security to the feeling I want of achievement or success. And I know that through my success, I will become the next CEO. It's very linear that way, but that could cause, you know, two different employees to take the exact same behavior you're looking for as a manager, which is data security, but make it more relatable to them. I love that approach because also it enables you to do a lot more storytelling around the communication as well. Isn't that true? Is it's, it's such a powerful way of working out the story that you need to tell. And that's going to really hook people much more than a whole list of data security do's and don'ts. <laughs> yeah, it's very clear in behavioral sciences now that we understand the world around us through story. We just do. It's called narrative psychology. If you're interested in, there's lots of great books on narrative psychology. But the more you can relate whatever the decision you're asking somebody to take or the behavior into a story, the better response you're going to get, the more emotional kind of people are going to get, because that's how we relate to the world. We're all in our own stories and we're not consciously aware of it, but we are all heroes, in fact, in our own story. That's why I said, make the story about them, not you, because I want to be the hero in my story. I don't want the company to be the hero in my story about this company stands for data security. Like That's not a fun story. What's a fun story is that I want to be the next CEO. And I know that there's this thing called security that I better be aware of and be secure with my customer's data. Therefore, I can become the hero of my story, which is the next CEO. That's the hero. That's why storytelling is... I mean, there's so much work in narrative psychology and telling stories. There's great books I'll even talk about later about this that'll help you understand the importance of telling stories and understanding the stories that your employees tell themselves. It's super easy. It's like there's so much work in this space that you don't have to do a lot of thinking on it. But stories are really impactful and really, really important for anybody. So we've touched on this a little bit, but I just wanted to go back to how internal communicators can actually implement this thinking. So that if they've got personas and audience segmentation at the moment, how does this work fit with that? So are you taking a kind of temperature check of possible mind states every time you're faced with a big communication initiative? Would that be a sensible way of doing it? Or can you check in with mind states irrespective of that? Is it like a sentiment check? I just wanted to work out how we'd actually make it work in practice. That's such an interesting way of thinking about it. I've never thought of it that way. I usually talk about a mind state as an overlay on top of whatever you already know about your internal culture and your segments or personas. So I used to do personality profiles um, in in corporate America where I was placed into a profile, whether it's yellow or green or blue. There's all these different types of models. This mindset idea does not take any of that away. We have personalities, no doubt about it. I have attitudes and beliefs and everything else. Um, So this is not to replace anything you're already doing. What it is doing though, and I kind of like what you said, a temperature check. It's when they are in the role of an employee in their current role, which is, you know, whatever, whether they're running IT or whether they're a food service worker, whatever that is, that they have a a role that they have, this overlays on top of what you already know to tell them in the moment when they're thinking about this role that they're under, here is how this mind state will influence the receptivity to your communication. So it goes into things like understanding how it'll, it, it can modify attitudes, how it modifies beliefs, what they're more likely to focus on, 
because remember in the moment based upon context and time of day and people around me like we've already been talking about our preferences change what we focus on changes etc so don't think of it as anything that replaces just think of it a mind state is giving you much greater clarity of that moment in time we call them trigger points in the book one thing i want to i want to make sure it's clear you're talking about temperature check what we find in the research and you're right to say temperature check but what we find in the research is that there tends to be in your career, your role, if you will, whatever that job function you're under, maybe two or three that fluctuate. You're not going to fluctuate to many, many others. There's going to be about two or three. So you don't have to always do a temperature check. But if you're aware that my employee tends to be driven by autonomy on some days and, you know, let's say achievement, the ones we were using before achievement on other days, just realize, let's not worry about the another seven motivations that are out there. Just ignore those. They, there, there may be one day or another, you know, for whatever reason, because, you know, their child got hurt earlier in the morning. So they're more of a nurturance mind state. They're more about caring and love. In general, you don't have to plan for that. Just plan for the two that are most used when they're in their role, in this case, achievement and autonomy. And then you can look at that person and say, today, this person's really desiring freedom. So I'm going to talk to that person about freedom and options that they have in their career. And other days, if she's hard driven and she's like, I got to get this project done. I'm going to talk about success and how important it is to overcome barriers and how we're here to create systems that help her do that. So you, you only have to really focus on two. So I don't know if I would do temperature checks all the time, but just in the moment, you're thinking, okay, here are the two. I'm looking out. I'm looking for cues on how she's acting this day, and I can modify my style very simply. And you learn about the, 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 the tools in the book to modify a style. You just have to relate it from... I wrote it from marketers. You have to relate it just back to interacting as a manager. So interesting. I did a piece of work once for a client who was quite brave. And she said, I've got this, uh, lots of organizations do this. They'll have an annual employee engagement survey. And she had these survey results. And she said, I, they're amazing results. They're brilliant results. I don't believe a word of them. I'm sure they're wrong. And I said, okay, we can certainly sort of quality assure them for you. But I've got a hunch that this is a standard set of questions you're asking everyone, but I have a hunch that depending on where people work and the kind of work they do, they're going to be engaged by different things. So let's go and test that. And it strikes me that we were creeping into the territory you're talking about because what we discovered was, for example, they had a crew of people that drove cash around in big vans to branches around the country. This was the sort of, you know, the, 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 the money that was being moved around this big branch network. And these people were very driven by autonomy. So waking up in the morning, being in their own van, deciding where they were going to go. You had branch staff, retail staff that were massively motivated by teamwork. So they loved that they had a local team in their local branch serving the community. Belonging, and belonging motivation. Belonging. I love it. Yep. Yeah. And then you had head office staff. And what we discovered about head office staff was they really wanted a career path. They were highly motivated about being able to see not just one step ahead, but three steps ahead. Have I got mm. somewhere to go in this company? So am I right in thinking that, that I was I was almost creeping into the right area here with that thinking? That's exactly right. I, I, I just was having a conversation this week with a company and we talked about segmentations. And I said, you know, have you ever been in a position where you have a segmentation of some kind and you're looking at their behaviors you're like, they behave differently than what they should have behaved. Like it didn't make any sense. And I always say this, I'm like, two things happen. One, you have a bad segmentation. Like it happens to the best of us. But the second thing is probably that in that initial segmentation, in that initial personality profile that you did, that you didn't understand 
that slightly deeper understanding of some people are driven by achievement, like you had said, they need the career path, while other people are in it for camaraderie and, and, and belonging. And, and if you don't realize that, then of course, everything gets watered down because you're treating everybody, everybody the same. And like I said, these sciences are not that's so complex. It just adds just one extra cert. I, I do it in two survey questions, actually, Katie. In two survey questions, I can understand the goals and those motivations. So it just requires you to ask two extra questions. But because of those two questions asked in that specific smart way, um, you now have much greater insight to that segmentation, that overlay that I was talking about on top of whatever the personality profiles, whatever the career profiles you have on your employees. So I knew you were so close. You just didn't have the structure. Like what I talked about in the book is... These sciences have been around for 30, 40, in some, in some cases, 100 years. Just nobody has actually taken it from the academic world and placed it into something that's relatable and useful. There's a lot more authors that are doing it now. By no stretch of imagination, I'm the only one. But 10 years ago, these things didn't exist. They just, nobody wrote about it. Academics did at Yale and at Stanford. Now people are seeing it from the business world saying, oh my gosh, there's these brilliant people out there that study this stuff. Let me make it more relatable to my me becoming a manager, me becoming a salesman, me becoming a father. People are out there doing that work for you right now. I absolutely love the book because you describe it, I think at one point, as a field guide to using mm. behavioral science to solve real business problems. And that's how I saw it. It felt Good. like that Thanks. field guide. It was laying out the territory. It was telling me what I needed to look for. Thanks. So I really do want to have the time to ask you those quick fire questions. But before we move on, is there one takeaway that you would love listeners to think about at the art uh, sort of that really encapsulates this thinking? If there's one message you'd like to give them from the book, what would that be? I, I think I'll go, just go down to basics, which are, and I'll, I'll go down to 35,000 decisions. You know, I don't, I don't know. You may say there's not possible. Let's cut it in half 17,000 decisions. And if you're like, that's not possible. Okay. Let's cut that in half. But let's just say, you know, 8,000 decisions are made on any given day. If you can just wrap your head around that and think to yourself, how many of those decisions can you as a person right now remember that you made yesterday? And if you can come up with 50 decisions, God bless you. So <laughs> if you've only able to remember 50 out of 8,000, it's so critical for you to understand, well, how are you getting through the day? How, how are you able to function? It's because of your non-conscious. And if you you got to come up with a model, you have to figure out a way to understand that. I've got my model um, in my book that's based on social psychology. There's lots of other models out there. But if I was going to ask you to walk away, it's understanding that these things are real and they're influencing everything you do every single day. So if you don't understand that about, about your, your, your world, you're missing out on a large chunk of your world. So take that away find a model that you can use, whether it's my model or somebody else's model, just so you're taking into consideration as a manager, how to relate to people subconscious, because it's such a big part of their world. And I think we should touch on the fact that actually, once you've decided on what elements of the model, people's goals, their motivations, that that really does inform the creative decision at the end of the day. I mean, you talk about photography in the book, for example, and the types of pictures that are really going to speak to someone in that mind state. So I think it is worth mentioning that as well, actually. This is, this is really practical stuff as well when it yeah. comes to creating content, isn't it? That's a great point. Thank you. Because I was, when I started out with the book, I had a decision to make with my publisher. And I could have written a book from the academic perspective that's sourced well with tons of academic studies. The problem is there are a ton of those books. If you go to amazon.com right now and you type in behavioral economics or anything, you're going to find a ton of books like that. What I didn't see three years ago was a practical guide. And I, I say in the, in the front of the book, um, 
uh, I actually wrote this. I said, this is for those who don't want to earn a PhD in psychology while reading. I didn't want to earn a PhD and, and I didn't earn a PhD, but I wanted something practical because I lived in the business world. And I know that you don't care about motivational psychology and hyperbolic discounting. What I do know you want to do is how do I get my employees to love their job and to want to be more creative? That's all you need to know. And if I go through it through this lens of behavioral science, let me do the work for you. And I remember it was a very, it was an important decision that I made. And I felt very nervous because I, I, I'm driven by esteem. So if you know the nine motivations, I'm driven by esteem, which is a desire for approval and respect. And in my head at the time, I thought the way I'll get respect is if I source all the academic studies for my book. And I remember my publisher, God love him, um, or my editor who said, well, there's all those books out there. You can still be respected by helping people get to something that's practical and relatable and usable. And that's why I start the story from the birth of my son. That's why I talk about my first Ironman triathlon, because I wanted something more practical and relatable. So I thank you for that, because it's, I believe it's why it became a bestseller. It's not because of the sciences are so new. These sciences are out there. You can read all about all these sciences without ever reading my book, but it was something that somebody could pick up like a real estate agent or somebody, a lawyer who could look at it and go, I can relate to the birth of a son and why that matters. I can relate to um, the girl who's in her closet who feels like she's so embarrassed with all the stuff that's on the ground and what, what to do with that. So that was my, my intent. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why I still get people to this day emailing me saying, thank you so much because this one small little point about dilating the pupils of the lead model's eye or framing a, one of my features around this will help you avoid risk, something as small as that, just that one little small detail helped them you know, increase the excitement or you know, um, the um, open rates of an email, something like that. So it is very practical. So thanks for, for noticing that because it's important. That was a very important decision I made back when I wrote the book. It's gold dust to any creative team that's looking for a proper creative brief. That's what I would say. Um, I am going to ask you those quick fire questions, if I may, in the time that we have remaining. So what would surprise people most about Will Leach? Yeah, I have no academic training in psychology, sociology. I'm an econometrician who fell in love with this stuff and I couldn't stop reading. So I think sometimes, or I don't have a PhD. And I always worry sometimes people are like, well, what are your credentials? I read about this stuff. When you're watching a football match, I'm reading about this stuff. When other people play golf, I read this stuff. So no formal training in this, but uh, all do-it-yourself, practical hands-on training. I wouldn't mind just going back to something you said very early on about your army days. You talked, it sounded like there was a mentor back then that really saw potential in you and that signed you up. And I just wondered about mentors. Is that something that has played a significant part in your career? Do you mentor now? I, I, I do, especially young researchers who, um, even though these scientists we've been talking about, they're really exciting and they're sexy and people love them. Frankly, there's still many programs out there in universities that really don't talk about this, especially in my field, which is marketing research. And so sometimes we have students who go through their entire degree process and they go their first two or three years in, in uh, their careers without ever hearing about system one and system two. Remember that first, like the basics you should know about the subconscious, how important it is. They never learn these. And so I've actually just recently started a, um, a, a, a program at Texas A&M University down here in Texas to start training younger researchers about these systems. Because just like any other, it's like a government organization. Yes, these, these are out there, but you have professors who have been teaching what they've known, granted, what they've known for decades. 
And they're not ready to teach a brand new science or whatever. So I think it's really important for us when we get this critical new information to tell others about it so they don't just wander in it like I did. I wandered in on it because of an experiment that went wrong at PepsiCo. I was an econometrician and I found out about these sciences. You don't want to wait 30 years or 20 years or for me, 15 years before this came out. You want to know about it earlier. So I think it's really important. It's very critical that we give back. Just to, It's going to help everybody, not only just us, because the more you teach it, honestly, Katie, the more you realize where there's flaws in your thinking, where you're not yes. being very clear. So it makes you a better mentor anyways and a better business person. But then also the future generations coming up, they can build on what you're doing so that you know one day my goal would be my great-grandson look back and say, what, what uncle or great-granddad will thought about marketing research, he was wrong. Like I want them to build on my stuff to where they look at me 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now and say, God, he thought he knew what he was talking about, but he didn't. That's when you know you're a great mentor is they've taken your idea and built so much on top of it that you're no longer relevant. When you've done that, retire, go to the sea because you did what you're supposed to do. You got you, you advanced the, the world a little bit and you got the hell out of the way. I love that. I love that so much because I think there's a, always a point in your career that you start to enjoy success vicariously through others. And I think mm -hmm. that's quite a special oh, moment actually it's when you best. get there. It's the yeah. best. What do you wish you had known when you first started out in your career? I, I always, people ask me for advice about starting their business or whatever. And I always say the same thing, find your thing. What I mean by that is that if you can find two passions of yours, and I don't care what they are, it could be football and insurance, or it could be comic books and cooking. I don't care what those two passions are, but if you can find a way to bring those together, and I'm not saying it's easy, it takes a lot of brainstorming, a lot, it takes a lot of experience, but if you bring these things together, you can monetize it. If we live in a world today where you can monetize anything, and when you can bring two of your passions together, you will have a distinct point of view that nobody else has. And I was telling students yesterday, I, I did a conference with a bunch of students. And I said, in today's world, where you're competing for the same job as another 3000 students who have the same degree, have taken the same classes, they've taken done the same case studies, and they probably have done an internship as well. How do you differentiate yourself versus somebody else versus 3000? And I can tell I told them this, I said, my two companies and if my book went away tomorrow, my two companies imploded. I damn well could go into a meeting and interview for a job. And I may not get that job, but you'll never forget me because I have a point of view, a very distinct point of view. And so if you could just, my, my advice is if I wish I would have created that point of view within the first couple of years of my career versus, and maybe it takes life, life, life experiences, but I, it took me 20 years to pull, pull that point of view together, that distinct thing. But because of that, I have a book, I have two companies, I travel the world speaking now because I took the time to do that. And I didn't realize I was doing it, frankly, in the, in the, in, when I was doing it. But boy, if I could talk to 18-year-old or 21-year-old, it will. I'd be like, try to find your passions and try to bring them together. Try to bring them together to find your thing and you'll never work another day. I don't work. I, like, I love what I do. You know I love what I do now. It's because I'm doing, I linked my two passions together and those passions created a book and two companies. That is such fantastic yeah. advice. What book do you recommend all professional communicators read? I'm fascinated by this. And we talked a little bit about it already, Katie, but this idea of stories and how important stories are. So there is a book, which is going to sound so counterintuitive that you should read, but it's called Seven Stories Every Salesperson Must Tell. It's by Mike Adams. And he looks at the world through sales. 
But the science behind what he's saying is the same science I use for marketing, which is the same science what you should be thinking about. So he talks about seven core stories that everybody should know or that they should know about you as well. And you can take that exact same book and you can, you can place it to how do I want my children to remember me and how can I inspire them to take action all the way from being a manager or whatever. So seven stories every salesperson must tell, even though you just have to stretch your imagination away from selling. Because frankly, you and I are selling every day. I'm selling to my employees to become better leaders and to maximize their output. I'm selling to my son how he should trust me to keep him away from danger. We're always selling whether we know it or not. So that's the, that's the book I would tell you to go read. Thank you for that recommendation. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you couldn't fail? Not tricky for me. I always say the same thing when somebody says like, you know, if you could meet anyone in the world living or dead, who would it be? I always say Bill Murray, the actor. <laughs> I am fascinated by Bill Murray. I think, I think he's amazing. I've never met him, but I, I would call Bill Murray and I would ask him if he would read my book so I could use an audiobook version of Marketing to Mindstates. I would do that. If I knew I wouldn't fail, I would do that immediately because I just want to be, I just want to be a part of Bill Murray's life, to be honest with you. I love that. And finally, this is borrowed from the Tim Ferriss show. We give you a billboard, a bit of a metaphorical billboard, really, but it's a, a space for you to put a message on, any message you like for millions to see. So what are you going to put on your billboard? Going back to those students, find your thing, find your thing, whatever that thing is, link two passions together. If you find your thing, your life will be changed. Will, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank Katie. Thank you so much for having me. This was my pleasure. I love thinking about these sciences and you gave me, you stretched my thinking uh, in this podcast. So thank you very much for having me. So that's a wrap, not just for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast, but for season five of the show. We have now recorded 48 episodes and received more than 61,000 downloads in more than 50 countries worldwide. You can find the show notes to this episode and all our previous ones at abcom.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I would like to thank everyone who has reached out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter and via email to say how much you value what we're doing here. Your feedback is massively motivating for me and the whole team that helps put these shows together. Building a meaningful dialogue with our employees has never been more important. What we do matters. And it's an absolute privilege to be part of this professional community which, let's be honest, is too often misunderstood or overlooked. So tell me about your challenges and your areas of interest so this show can continue to inform, support and hopefully inspire you. You can email me direct at icpodcast at abcom, abcom.co.uk. It won't be long before we start planning season six which will kick off later in 2021. So if you know anyone who would make a great guest or have a topic you'd like me to explore, please let me know. So until we are reunited for season six, I wish you every success, both professionally and personally. And as 2021 continues to throw 
fresh challenges our way, remember, it's what's inside that counts.